We'd be gutted with that dagger and just twisting around. But like Arya, we would improbably survive. No, we'd do some Westeros parkour. You know, we'd, we'd shake it off, just rub some dirt on it, get some ointment. We'll be good to go. Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. This is our special episode where we say farewell to Game of Thrones Season 7 as a whole, offer a few closing thoughts, and the part I'm most excited about is present the Season 7 Throny Awards, which got over 700 votes. I'm really, really excited about this, and what surprised me the most is that people wrote in some insanely clever, really creative responses. I can't wait to get to those later in the episode. I totally expect our audience uh, would be writing in some unique and strange takes on the categories. So I'm excited to see that as well. Sorry that we're a little bit late on this. I'll take ownership for that. Uh, I decided to change internet providers earlier in the week. And as some of you might know, I live in Orlando, Florida. So we have a little hurricane heading our way. Uh, so my installation for my AT&T fiber got delayed a couple days, so I was uh, out of internet service, so we couldn't record. Uh, I apologize. I'm back online today and excited to finish up Game of Thrones Season 7 and look forward to Season 8. So in this edition, uh, we're going to be talking about what we know about Season 8 so far. Looking forward to the next season. Also, Big D put up a challenge for us to rank the seasons, and I happily accepted. So we're going to have our season rankings, which don't match at all. We're going to talk a little bit about the best scenes of Season 7, uh, what we did like. And finally, we'll get to the Throny Awards, as aforementioned. Uh, we will read you the nominees, why they were nominated, and finally, how the audience responded. So it's a, it's a packed episode and a fitting way to say goodbye to an awesome season of Game of Thrones. And I think the delay helped me, for one. Because uh, when you're watching the season and you're in the, the weekly grind of putting out the podcast, you don't have a, a second to step back and think of the season as a whole. So the challenge for us to go back and rank the seasons forced me to look at season seven in, in a new way. Yeah, for me, it was, again, it gave me a time to go back and, and look at a couple episodes. I didn't watch the entire season all over again, but went back and spot checked certain things, kind of like we do with Shat the Movies, to look back and say, is this as good a scene as I remembered? Is this as faulty as I remembered? And really, I've said to a lot of people, if you look at season seven as one long movie, it's actually a lot better uh, than if you look at it as individual episodes. Think of it as one as one long narrative. So jumps in time, that's really common with movie making, not really common with TV. So it's something to consider when you're, when you're looking at the season overall. Yeah, also going back and looking at some of the older seasons, you forget how much the slower pace... There are episodes where almost nothing major happens. So I was flipping back, going through, trying to find some of the big scenes to rank them in an, in an accurate, fair way. And you just forget how, you know, we hated the, the jetpacking and, and the advanced plot and tempo of the storyline. But going back, it used to be real slow in some of the seasons. And in my rankings, it totally affected it. So even though seven doesn't rank high on either of our scales... As a whole, I, I think it was enjoyable and the the critical eye that everybody you know, gave it and the problems we had with it, the further we get away from it, I think people are going to like it more. So let's talk about that, Big D. How did you rank the seasons uh, from worst to best? 
So I went back and we had had some conversations about what we thought. So I wanted to be fair and not just, you know, throw it up there by the big bowman. So I went back in the, in the seasons and tried to find each season's high moments and low moments. So for me, my worst season was season five. And the bad of that season, you had the Sand Snakes, Jamie and Braun's mission to Dorne was really wasted time on screen and Dorne never developed into anything. The good... Hard home, the Walk of Atonement, but on a whole, it, it's still my worst season. Now, for me, season five was the second to worst, and the only season I thought worse was actually season seven. Uh, I agree with you; the Sand Snakes are something that never needed to happen. Uh, they reappeared in season seven, which also put a drag on that. I felt that uh, Jamie and Braun and Dorn was pretty awful. It was uh, just a bizarre. Uh, I was really excited when they were on their way to Dorn, and the way it panned out was not very exciting. Um, I agree. Hard home was incredible. And the walk of atonement, you know, I went back and that's one of the things that I did. I did rewatch in doing these rankings. That was the kind of game of Thrones uneasiness that I ruefully appreciate. It's the, it's awkward. Uh, Cersei, this character used to seeing strong and empowered. She's nude. You don't know what's going to happen to her. You feel bad about everybody involved. You feel bad for the persecuted and the persecutor. That's the kind of Game of Thrones that I really love. It's the the kind that you feel like you got to take a shower after watching it. And for me, that gave season five a bit of a bump. Yeah, and I don't mean the Walk of Atonement as far as Cersei walking through King's Landing uh, naked, being, you know, hit with feces and assorted vegetables and uh, people flashing her for five full seasons. She was despised. Everybody wanted to see her suffer and to finally watch her fall and be broken and grovel. There was some gratification in that. So it wasn't even the final walk of atonement. It was more season five watching Cersei fall. My second worst season ranking at number six was season two. For me, the bad was a season spent with Stannis stumbling around, Daenerys' morandering storyline in Karth. But the good, it was good. The Battle of Blackwater, which was one of the best. But for me, season one had done a lot to set up the board and was so enjoyable with world building. Season two, because of the way season one ended, it kind of reset the board. So a lot of time was spent with Renly and Stannis and a much slower season and for me, down towards the bottom at six. Yeah, Big D, you and I both had season five and season two low on our list. I had them uh, one slot higher for each. And I agree, season two was mostly forgettable. That's my main note on the entire season. I tried to think back on each of these off the top of my head, what I remembered about the seasons. And season two, all I could remember was Blackwater. Uh, so I went back and looked at it a little bit further. And I agree, I still feel that Blackwater is the strong, the high point of that season. It showed how a battle should be portrayed. You saw the planning that went involved in the battle. You didn't know which side was going to win, which is something that I thought was lacking about season seven, is kind of a predictability factor. Uh, season two was fairly unpredictable. And you even had mention of uh, of the women kind of considering taking poison, the possibility that they could be raped. And there was a real dread uh, going into that battle. I also felt that season two spent a lot of necessary time making unlikable characters truly horrible. So you think about the hatred that you have for several characters that later get their comeuppance uh, in this series. And a lot of that stems from season two. Season one didn't give us as much reason to hate as season two did. I, I feel that that was the season that really gave people investment emotionally in who wins and who loses. So even though people always remember the, the Battle of Blackwater Bay, for the fight, I love the little subtle details from Tyrion trying to 
implement the wildfire defense to the hound and brawn with that epic conversation in the brothel slash tavern of king's landing where they almost come to blows to find out who's the tougher man and you might think that season two is great because you have such fond memories of the first few seasons but go back and watch it's not one of the stronger ones all right what's next for you what's in the number five slot well number five spot is where i gotta put season seven for all the problems the bad that we had with the rushed pace uh, they did cover a lot of ground. Uh, we finally got to see main characters together. The Dragon Pit meeting uh, put almost every major character in one place. Uh, we had never seen, we'd always wondered, hey, what will happen when the Hound and Brienne get back together? Uh, maybe when Tyrion and Podrick see each other again. Uh, Cersei and Daenerys meeting. It was a great meeting of all the characters coming together. Then you can't fight the sheer spectacle of season seven. With the loot train battle, the destruction of the wall, you have the Magnificent Seven going north, Uh, you have the Dragon Resurrection. So even though we had some problems with it, I still think it's better than most people want to give it credit for. I respectfully disagree, my friend. I put season seven at the bottom of the barrel. This is the worst season to me, and it boils down to the plot making no sense. I can accept time shifting. I can accept spectacle. I can accept all that stuff, even minor points of impossibility like Jamie springing out of Blackwater Rush despite all of his armor. But the plot just made no sense. The reasons why people were doing things, um, you know, the, the plan to go get a white, I think, was the best example of just something making no sense at all. And that really bothered me. And then beyond that, the developments that occurred in this season, uh, were a lot of, you know, I, I despise when people say, wouldn't it be cool if, and dot, dot, dot. And I felt like a lot of the writing staff was doing that in this season. Uh, they degraded, those developments degraded Game of Thrones to the level of The Walking Dead. I felt like I was watching something that should be on AMC, but with the production quality of HBO. And I think it also lost differentiation among fantasy shows. This is a show, if you look at, at the first book, uh, Game of Thrones, magic doesn't even really make an appearance or the supernatural doesn't really make an appearance until very, very late in the book with the you know introduction of, of dragons. And I feel like with the increase of uh, of magic appearing, the less I like it, it's the same with the series. So to me, it was kind of like once we got into this point uh, where everything was possible and there's magic and there's dragons, and I understand that that's the nature of the world, right? As dragons grow and are, have unbridled freedom, so does magic grow in the world. I understand that. But to me, it feels a lot like what we've seen on other fantasy shows and movies. And I really like that it was a thing apart before. So for me, season seven is the worst. Okay, so y- you may have problems with it as a season as a whole. If I asked you right now, you have to sit down and rewatch an entire season. You're telling me you would rewatch season five over season seven? No, I, you're right there. I would definitely watch season seven over season five. I think for me, I'm saying more the, the importance okay. to the story, the enjoyability on first view, how I feel about the season as a whole. But yeah, you, I agree. If you had to sit me down and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to watch one season end to end today, which one are you going to watch? Yeah, I'd put seven over five for sure. Good. I'm glad. Because even though it's not a perfect season, it's enjoyable. It's good TV. So that leads me into my number four season. And my number four season is season six. Uh, The bad was all the time we wasted with the Faceless Men's School and Arya. Uh, Then they realized they had screwed up uh, with, you know, the season five Sand Snakes, Dorne mission with Braun and Jaime. So they overcorrected hard the other way. But the good of this season epic moments with Hodor and the door 
Battle of the Bastards, the epic explosion at the Great Sept, and that musical interlude that starts off uh, with the slow piano. We follow without a spoken word, Tommen getting dressed, Cersei getting dressed, leading up to the explosion of the Sept. Epic, epic season, and I put that at my number four. For me, I actually really liked the House of Black and White. I felt it was a great contrast uh, to the cacophony that was happening elsewhere in the world. So for me, I agree. I'm right with you on the same page. Four, number four slot, season six. Uh, we had so much going on here. Uh, Hodor's big reveal, I thought, was a breathtaking moment in the show. I was actually a few weeks behind everybody else on that. And so it was ruined for me in the sense that uh, I, I caught a spoiler. Well, I guess it's not really a spoiler if the rest of the world knows. I, I paid the price for being late to the show on that one. And uh, that was a huge reveal, though, and it, it broke my heart. Hodor was a beloved character. I think that that was one of the last times that something happened to somebody that we truly cared about. Battle of the Bastards was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Still my favorite battle on the show. It was also heartbreaking. Uh, and again, the spectacle of the Sept of Baylor. It was the kind of grand event you can get behind. And I think what it did there, again, which is something we haven't seen since, is it restated the show's ability to kill major beings alongside nobodies, right? That that there was collateral damage to things, that people could die for no reason at all, and, and major characters could die for no reason at all other than the fact that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I agree with you. Season six is uh, right in the middle. I mean, you talked about having meaningful deaths for Hodor, has there been, since season six, an oh-shit moment like Tommen taking off the crown, setting it down, slowly stepping up on the windowsill and jumping out? I can't remember since that being like, holy shit, just screaming at the TV. I think it's an amazing finish, and it shows you that as much as we love season six, it still only fits at number four. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That scene, one of the most notable things about it was how muted it was as well, too, that he passes by the window and then... He rises and and drops through, and they didn't have him struggling with the decision, uh, you know, close-up of his face and rising music and stuff like that. It was just very factual. It was very muted, um, and it was very fitting. And I think that it signaled a change in Cersei as well. So um, that was a really huge moment in season six, but you're absolutely right. The fact that there are three seasons better than that uh, uh, kind of speaks to the quality of the show. Now we're getting into, we're over the hump, we're getting into our, our favorites. So for you, you're number three. Yeah, when we get to the top three, the differentiating factors are so minute. You could rearrange them personally in any way. But I'm pretty confident that my third top season was the premiere season, season one of, of Game of Thrones. The good, they did a ton of world building. Uh, they showed the gradual descent from Ned and his eventual murder shocked everybody. Because until this point... TV shows, series didn't do this. They don't kill off major characters. Uh, and when this happens, when they behead Ned, I remember everybody being like, holy shit, what's next? It shaped every season that followed it that you didn't know what was coming. It was unexpected. And the world building, you can't understate it. In a show that has this many characters, this many different families and houses, to get people on it, I remember in the beginning telling family members, you got to watch it. And I would have to caution them, listen, get through the first half of the season, then the houses, the people, how they, uh, how their relationships interlock, the history. It took a lot. If you didn't execute season one so beautifully, you would have lost viewers. So that world building is key, and that's why it locks down for me in the number three spot. 
Now, I had uh, season one as my favorite season, and it was because of the maturity of the season. Uh, a lack of special effects, a lack of spectacle, a lack of budget made the show lean on really strong writing. Uh, it's like the difference between um, stagecraft and blockbuster movies, right? That they had to lean on the power of the acting uh, and really, really closely sticking to the script. And that's one of the things that really blew me away now that I've been reading the books is that you look at how closely they adhered uh, to the text in season one. Yeah, there were some changes, but in its in essence, the show stuck so closely to the source content and it made it a really rich show. There were uh, very few powerful heroes at this stage. People were just kind of normal. I mean, you look now at with Arya and her superpowers and uh, you look at, you know, John being able to be resurrected and Beric Dondarrion running around and the Night King. And this was a much more grounded show in season one. People were just normal. They had flaws. They had faults. And they were all just trying to very subtly uh, maneuver. Uh, I agree with you. Ned's execution changed television. You mentioned not killing off a major character. That's a very odd thing for a show to do. Not only that, but a show this big with that face on every poster, every billboard. He was the face of the show. And doing it in season one was a really, really big gamble. And I'm, I'm glad it paid off. And more importantly, more than any of that, was the fact that we met so many characters who captured our imaginations. This was our first handshake with so many of these characters that endure until today and uh, and are so powerful. And you also think back to characters uh, that we, we really fell in love with that have since died. And the first time we met them was in this season. For me, season one is as good as the show got. But I agree that it is a fine line between, uh, between season uh, one and seasons you know, three and four. It's worth it to watch the premiere again to see uh, King Robert come north with the entire Lannister clan and uh, to see how young everyone was. You feel like when you're watching this, you're like looking at old family photos and you're like, oh my God, look look how little they were and how much we've grown with them. And if they had screwed up the premiere or season one, we never would have gotten to the point we're at now. So I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't have the budget you mentioned because it might have caused them to force some things. So without having the money for the spectacle it's become, they had to focus on the writing. So I agree there. That gets me now. Let's go into my number two spot. So we're going top two seasons. For me, number two is season three. Uh, there's so much good in season three. You have Jamie and Brienne, the road show, Danny freeing the slaves in Ostapor, and finally hearing her say, you know, Drick Harris, uh, the Red Wedding, epic all time TV shocker. Bad, there was a little, it was Theon's season of torture and Bran's long walk northward. We needed those two, but the the good and the high points in season three, to me, make it solid lock in my second spot. I cannot argue on uh, on most of that, Big D. I, I had season three in my number three slot, so right behind you on that. Uh, the Red Wedding, I think, was the most powerful scene in the season, if not the entire series. I have to disagree, though. What turned me off on this season, uh, if even slightly, was uh, Daenerys's uh, more prominent role. Like I understand that it's part of the narrative. I just really wasn't interested in the way that they presented it. I felt it was something that we'd seen before in film. Um, it was a little too idealistic, and I really didn't uh, appreciate how much time they spent on it. Uh, Theon's torture, I think it was necessary, but not my favorite thing to watch, but I get why they did it. Uh, but again, to me, that I had belief at this time, this naive belief in season three, that the young wolf, that Rob Stark had some chance in uh, in turning this thing around, and they just crushed it in front of me. And it was 
one of the most devastating uh, scenes I've ever seen in my life. Your problem with Daenerys' storyline, for me, that was season two. The entire Karth, where she's walking around, you know, it's the beginning of her rise, her ascension to power. When you got to season three, this is her freeing of the slaves, her getting the Unsullied. Uh, the first time that the dragons are actually used as a weapon to burn the slave master, she was just floundering around. Here she finally gets a foothold and became someone to be reckoned with. Uh, season three, I would sit down and watch it again. Great season, but it doesn't make it to the number one spot for me. Uh, number one is season four. Uh, you have the purple wedding. Everybody loved to see Joffrey finally get uh, get what he deserved. End of the season, Mountain the Viper fight. Uh, but for me, the highlight of this season and one of the series is Tyrion's trial for Joffrey's murder and having him screaming at the people of King's Landing uh, how, how he wanted to kill them and he wished he could, but he didn't. Uh, you have the Hound and Brienne facing off. We have the battle in the Watchers on the Wall. All strong high points. For me, there was not a misstep in season four. And that's why I gave it a slight edge over season three. You could turn around right now and there's four episodes I would watch right now. I agree with you on about 90% of that. Season four really was the last vintage season for me. I think that the show took a turn after four. And this was the last one that really captured the spirit of what the show was about for me. Uh, Joffrey's death, again, really satisfied. Viper vs. the Mountain was a tightrope walk watching it. I mean, you were on edge the whole time. Uh, and Tyrion's trial, I agree, was some of the strongest scripting in the show's history. Uh, Watchers on the Wall is, I'd say, my top three battles. It was a terrific spectacle. It was just the right balance between amazing effects and, and really visceral uh, action. But what bothered me about season four, the little nitpicky thing I had that made it not my favorite season, was we were starting to get hints of the good guys always winning. Uh, this was a triumphant season, but I don't necessarily need to see triumph, and I don't know if that's the reason why people got invested in this show. And so... Again, this is not a complaint about the narrative overall, because I believe that George R. R. Martin has a story to tell. I believe the show creators have a story to tell, and I'm willing to go along with it. I'm just saying, again, this is a very personal, very subjective thing. Is The reason why I liked season one better than season four was that season one, good guys were losing left and right, and that's the kind of story I like to see. So really, these two th could be tied for me. So as a recap there, give me your rankings on the seasons uh, from worst to best. I'll, I'll flip that around. I'm going to go best to worst. Okay. So for me, best season was season four, next season three, then season one, getting to the bottom half, season six, season seven, season two, and the worst, season five. Mine is similar yet delightfully different. Uh, I would say the best season was season one, followed by season four, three, six, season two, season five, and season seven. I know people out there are going to disagree, and so please tweet at us at chat on TV or email us and let us know what you think. I would love to hear uh, just if, if you think we're wrong about something, if you agree with something, uh, that would be great to know. I, this was a lot of fun going through them uh, with you, Big D. And I, I'd love to hear from some of our regulars and some of the uh, listeners that we haven't heard from before about, uh, about how they rank these. God, it makes me wish that we had added this as one of the questions on the Thronies. Rank the seasons. Fuck, that would have been good. So, which brings us to the next thing that we could talk about is the best scenes of season seven. You know, both of us ranked season seven fairly low in the entire pantheon, but it's not that we didn't appreciate season seven. It's just the show is so strong in itself. For me, the best scenes of season seven were anything involving Davos Seaworth. Uh, he's so inherently likable. 
uh, despite switching sides a few times. If he was a less likable character, he'd be like, man, this guy flip-flops. He just jumps ship and goes to the other side constantly. Um, and he's not really very good at anything in particular. He's not a particularly good fighter. He's an okay smuggler, I guess. Uh, he's, he's a got great a bit smuggler. Of there. He's a great smuggler. He got him into King's Landing. It's not his fault that uh, Tyrion decides to walk around without a disguise. There's not too many dwarfs with a scar, and he's walking around with a cloak like he thinks he's Obi-Wan. Davos, he's got skills. It could be argued that they knew they were coming and uh, and allowed them in, but, you know, sure. whatever. But but as far as Davos, do do we think it's the character or the actor portraying him? Oh, I think it's a bit of both. But yeah, if you had a lesser actor, he's not as, as enjoyable. I think for me, the thing with Sir Davos is, again, that if you said, hey, we're going to have this character who, you know, like I said, isn't particularly good at fighting, uh, has, has shifted sides a couple times. He's just kind of a hanger on that talks a lot. It doesn't sound like a very appealing character. And yet he is one of the most beloved characters on the show. So he really made season seven for me. I liked everything that he was in. Yeah, now we love him for his, his kind of dry humor and his, his witty comebacks. Uh, it was enjoyable to go back and watch him try to negotiate and deal with Stannis and Melisandre, knowing now what we do about the character, that he had to be restrained and walk that fine line to not get himself killed. Uh, but it's totally, totally on the actor. He's fantastic to watch, and he emotes even without opening his mouth. Just watching him in the dragon pit kind of look around and react silently, enjoyable. The highlight for me as well. Uh, for me, one of the the high points and the best scenes, even though it's short, was the the first one right out the shoot is Arya killing the phrase. Even though when you first see Walder discussing the the victory and and rejoicing with a a festival with all the phrase, you know that didn't he die last season at Arya's hand? So it took that second to click. So it wasn't a complete reveal. But it was enjoyable uh, to watch all the phrase uh, just sit there on the floor, poisoned, and for Arya to turn to Walder's wife and say, when people ask you what happened, make sure you tell them the North remembers. Epic scene, great way to start the season. So for me, it's one of the best. Yeah, it was definitely an excellent kickoff to the season and, and really gave us all high hopes um, about season seven. I think also just getting that justice uh, for the Red Wedding, it kind of put bookends on that entire season. Um, to me, the best scene, perhaps, of, of a singular scene, although that was a great one in, in season seven, was that opening charge at Blackwater Rush. When you see the Dothraki uh, coming down the hill, you see the dragons in tow, and you just had that, oh, yeah, moment. Like It was really, really exciting to watch. I think every great TV series uh, finale usually we'll have that moment where the big force rolls in and the action's about to start. And I think that with the sound, with the visuals on it, they really executed well. My favorite part of Blackwater Rush wasn't even the dragon attack, but rather that opening charge when they crashed at the Lannister lines was just, it was really great television. Uh, for me, the highlight was Braun and Jamie's discussion as the Dothraki, you know, kind of crest the hill. And they're like, you know, you have the Tarleys that are getting all the Lannister army in line. Uh, and Braun says, hey, you know, you get back to King's Landing. I'll stay here. Uh, and Jamie says, no, no, we can hold it. We can hold the line until you hear Drogon's roar. And the reaction that those two actors have mirrored me like, holy shit. Look at this dragon flying into battle. And Jamie goes uh, from this, you know, battle-hardened warrior, somebody who we've never seen very shaken. 
to just the rest of the episode, as beautiful as it visually and the special effects that went into it and the action was awesome. I really love the subtle focus the camera had on Jamie as a character being lost among the chaos. So I love that as well. For me, the next season, the next scene that I have in my best, it has to be the Brienne and Arya sparring. It, it's a short scene, but we spent, we just discussed how many hours did we spend watching her train and get beaten by the waif in Bravos to finally pay off in this battle with Brienne to see her as a viable weapon, to see that her, you know, the beating she took and all the lessons she's learned, uh, the water dance technique she uses with needle, and also then to have the dagger. Uh, she's learned from everyone who she's come across, and I could watch it again. Uh, beautiful. I still don't know whether Brienne was taking it a bit easy. Uh, I think that Arya might have had a chance against her, but uh, that battle was choreographed, fantastic, and truly enjoyable to watch. It's interesting that some people criticize this scene, and the chief criticism you hear is, oh, right, like you're telling me Arya could beat Brienne, like suddenly she's this great warrior. And first of all, it's not what the scene's telling you. The scene's telling you that, yeah, that she is competent, right? That that it's sparring. It is not actual battle. They're not wearing full armor uh, and not taking into account every factor of battle, right? If if Brienne of Tarth swings that sword, you know, and, and catches Arya in any way, in, in a realistic fashion, she's done. Uh, and also... Arya has to be very, very surgical with an attack. So I think what they were showing was a mutual respect. Uh, they were showing that she can hold her own and that she is competent. That's that's the chief thing there. But beyond that, when you see a show tell you something and you reject that thing outright, you're rejecting what the tale is trying to tell you. And to me, that is, uh, that is in- ex- extreme arrogance in the sense that the show is telling you, Arya, through her trials, through her tribulations, through everything that she suffered through, has now emerged strong enough to at least compete with Brienne of Tarth. It's giving you a gauge of what she is capable of. So this would be like somebody coming and saying, I want to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was this girl named Arya. She went through this, this, and this. And finally, she became such a great swordsman that she could hold her own against the greatest warrior's lands. You go, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Impossible. You know, it's... you're negating the story itself. And so to me, I agree with you. This was a great scene and told us a lot about how far Arya has come. Yeah, and there was a maturity. There was a confidence uh, from her dealing with the, the two guards at the main entrance of Winterfell. It's the first time that she's not a child in, in my eyes. She's strong, confident. Yes, is she going to beat you know, the best swordsman? No, she can't. That's not her specialty. But it was great to see her have that confidence and she was no longer a victim. Um, next one for me, uh, I think would have to be the sacking of Highgarden. And since we don't see the sacking, it's actually the conversation between, uh, Jamie and Lady Olena and her getting the last words and zing at Cersei, even in death. Uh, did you enjoy that scene as much as I did? Yeah, that scene was the scene that sparked a thousand memes, man. I mean, Olena went overnight from, uh, uh, from the Queen of Thorns to becoming essentially the thug life on the internet. Uh, so I love that she went out like a boss. I think it, it was a great testament to the character, a great way to show that it was a different way to look at death from Game of Thrones. We had a character here who was dying, knew she was dying, accepted it on her own terms, and got in a last dig. Um, I also, in that montage of, of the High Garden and Casterly Rock uh, attacks, 
Uh, I also liked that how it flipped the script. Remember, before that happened, we thought that they had a plan that that Tyrion's advice was going to outsmart the Lannister army, and then this quickly changed the the course of things. Uh, it, it was unexpected for me. I didn't see, uh, and the way that it was told was uh, was really clever. Uh, so there was a lot of innovation in the way it was told, the way it was shot. I thought that Castle Rock and Highgarden were both great scenes. Totally agree. It was a visual misdirection using Tyrion's uh, his, his voiceover exposition that even though we didn't have the big, oh shit, surprise moment, this one did catch me off guard and I enjoyed it. It made me question the rest of the season if what I was seeing was really what was going on or I was led to believe that the, the plot was going a certain direction. So much like Ned's death in season one made you expect that any character could die at any moment. This also made me question if what I was seeing was actually happening. So I, I enjoyed it for that. Last one for me is everyone would probably think the attack, Euron's attack with the silence on Yara's ship. It's an epic battle. It was It's right up there with any of the action sequences. I like the subtle moments a little bit more. And the Hound, when he's with the the Brotherhood Without Banners, and they come upon that uh, that cottage that Ari and the Hound had visited earlier, I think it was season three or four, when he was with Arya, and he had robbed the silver from the farmer. To finally find that farmer inside holding his daughter, looks like the farmer had killed himself and the daughter. This was the first time that he feels remorse, that he goes out into the middle of a blizzard and digs a grave for both the farmer and his daughter. For me, poignant, quiet, and now you can't do anything but pull for the hound. I think another scene that had a lot of people conflicted uh, was the death of Littlefinger. And I just want to stick up for it for a second and say, you know, it wasn't... Um, I, I think the buildup to it was a little off. Uh, the, the, that whole interplay between Arya and Sansa... Uh, and 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 then involving Bran in the story, it just felt disconnected. And you know, people have brought up the fact that there was supposed to be an additional scene that was cut that kind of showed it a little more. But I didn't need it explained more. I just thought it was an odd tangent to go on. It could have been executed better. But I think the ultimate payoff with the death of Littlefinger, I still really enjoyed. It was fitting that the cat's paw dagger. It was fitting that it was Arya who did it, and an echo of uh, of Rob starting a campaign to rescue Sansa being an echo of you know that, that letter that was used and, and how it triggered things. All in all, uh, speaking to the unification of the Starks, again, I, I really liked it. And who didn't enjoy seeing Littlefinger die? It might not have been exactly the way you wanted it to happen, but you really liked seeing it happen. Yeah, not every death can be Joffrey. Uh, you know, dying at his wedding in epic fashion. If you want to keep the plot real, sometimes deaths are quick. Littlefinger was backed into a corner. He couldn't create a defense against Bran, who's throwing out uh, evidence that no person could possibly have. Littlefinger didn't have any way out. And for his death to be quick, some might say it's anticlimactic. For me, it was fitting. Littlefinger often dragged out things to try to work on the players. This was quick. He's caught. There's no defense. Execute him. Uh, I thought it was fitting, and I'm hoping, I know you're not, that we see Littlefinger's face again on our favorite little assassin. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention other big scenes that we like. One was obviously the battle uh, north of Eastwatch, uh, where Viserion died and was resurrected. That kind of shocked everyone. I think people saw the whole, quote-unquote, ice dragon thing coming, but uh, not the manner in which it happened. 
And uh, and then the other dragon scene that was infamous in this uh, season was uh, Drogon burning Randall and uh, and Dick on Tarly. I think we both saw those characters being built up. Uh, the audience expected something to happen with them. I remember earlier in the season, I said, Randall Tarly is a character to watch. He's really going to be a general that's going to lead the Lannister forces uh, and really give them a fighting chance against Daenerys. Uh, apparently not. So uh, that caused a lot of uh, discussion, too, of the, the nature of Daenerys and whether she was uh, truly a, a descendant of the Mad King and that or she become a tyrant. Uh, I think those notions were quelled pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I think that's the best of season seven. Now looking forward to season eight, Big D, you did some research. Uh, the audience I'm sure is excited to know what we can expect coming up in season eight. Rumor has it, and you know, somebody tweeted, Hey, what do you think of the season? <laughs> this was right after the finale of Dare. Somebody wrote, and what do you think of the season eight leaks? And I was like, how the hell is there possibly season eight leaks? So no, I didn't go diving into it because I don't want to know any of it. It, it affects uh, anything from you know people making speculations about plot and what's going to happen to characters uh, to everybody you know having their own take and saying well you know that happened so you must have seen a spoiler or this is the way it's going to go. As much as we like fan fiction and 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 people kind of trying to find what's going to happen, it shouldn't come at the expense of actually leaked material. So what I want to do is I want to stick with what we've had published in either interviews with the cast or the crew and what we know uh, about the, the timeline of the show going forward. But I don't think this timeline is going to make anybody excited. Right. We've got a, a long wait. Uh, I know timers are already up on Facebook and all over the internet saying, you know, 520 days or so until uh, the next, uh, till the next episode of Game of Thrones. And uh, that just seems like forever away. I remember when we were talking about Westworld coming back, you know, in 2018, that was, uh, you know, back when, when the show first aired, and it seemed like forever away. This now, uh, talking 2019 to wait for a show that we kind of only got seven, you know, only seven episodes of this time, that's going to be painful. Yeah, people are hoping for 2018, but uh, HBO programming president confirmed Enter- Entertainment Weekly that the Double Ds are going to start working on the final season for the next year and a half. And that the final season could possibly air at 2018, but most likely in the beginning of 2019. And a lot of that is dependent upon, it seems like a lot will be post-production. That uh, as much as we had a ton of battles in season seven, that season eight will be dependent upon a lot of CGI. So we can anticipate that whites, whites, walkers, battle sequences, dragons, aerial battles, Uh, So post-production will take up quite a bit of time. And then also they have to revolve the filming schedule around the weather and the locations because you need Ireland and the other locations to be cold. And as winter is coming, uh, one thing that we know is coming up is is more White Walkers uh, featured in the show. Uh, The actor who plays Jamie Lannister, uh, Nikolai Coster-Waldo, said that many main characters uh, are going to get turned into White Walkers. How many? Uh, we're not sure, but uh, that's something that uh, that is going forward. I know there's been a lot of speculation from the audience that where is Hodor? We haven't seen him. Um, or is it going to be somebody who's alive now who is turned into a White Walker? But it does seem that that will be a part of season eight is having main characters who um, are turned. Uh, oh, gosh, not just into whites, but white. I'm not into whites, but White Walkers. That's it. So it'd be somebody living, apparently. Well, I, I don't know if he misspoke. He did say White Walkers. I, I'm anticipating that. Uh, you know, God, if he, if he, cause he did say that, cause that quote I took directly from the article, 
But as much as, just think about how the reaction that we all had to Viserion being resurrected and joining the Army of the Dead. Imagine some of our favorite characters. Imagine Tyrion becoming a white or white walker or Jon Snow. Uh, imagine how that would feel or the Hound. Any of these characters that we've learned to love or Arya or Sansa, it would really just stick a knife in us and like the waif, we'd be gutted with that dagger and just twisting around. That'd be difficult to watch. But like Arya, we would improbably survive. No, we do some Westeros parkour. You know, we'd, we'd shake it off, just rub some dirt on it, get some ointment. We'll be good to go. Uh, but even though we have a long wait for season eight, I hope, you know, that the episodes are longer. You know, much like the finale of this season that we had, it was, what was it, 90 minutes? Almost feature length. They've promised that the final six episodes will be uh, 80 minutes or longer. So it, I hope we have at least any, if you look forward to it, it's eight to nine hours, almost a full season. And for me, I liked the longer format. I would be okay with six or seven episodes if they were like the finale. It allowed them to block the scenes and the plot. If you tried to split up the finale, it would have been a bit disjointed. So the longer format, I think, really works well with the Game of Thrones plot. Yeah, you can end up with another uh, Blackwater Rush scene. Like, okay, we got to stick these two episodes together. Just uh, separate it with a plunge into a river. That makes perfect sense. But I, I, the, the nice thing is, though, you mentioned that this last season is going to give us about eight or nine hours, uh, you know, possibly of Game of Thrones. But it's not going to be the end of it. Uh, there's no way that a franchise that's this profitable, that has this kind of a fan following, is going to just stop at that. I think it's classy move of them to stop this particular uh, title, Game of Thrones, on HBO uh, at that point. I, I hate when seasons go on too long. It's a, it's a thing in American TV that drives me nuts. And one of the reasons why I really like... Uh, like, say, The Office on the BBC was just two seasons and a, and a special, and that was it. And that, I love seeing that sort of thing. So, But there are spinoffs in the work, yeah? Yeah, it sounds like they have a few potential uh, spinoffs, up to five possibly that they're developing. I don't know which one they're going to go with that would work. But as a big Breaking Bad fan uh, who thought Better Call Saul would be the worst idea on television, why would they even do it? And almost like it was a joke when it was first announced. Uh, I, have you watched it? Any of the Better Call Saul? Yeah, I'm two seasons in, and I think it's it's an excellent TV show. Yeah, season one struggles a bit because they were trying to find their individual identity away from Breaking Bad. But the last two seasons of Better Call Saul have been thoroughly enjoyable. If HBO can develop a spinoff of Game of Thrones that doesn't cheapen the original, I don't think there's anyone who would complain or not watch that. It's a guaranteed blockbuster. Look at the audience Game of Thrones has. And there's going to be a hole in, in HBO's lineup that a spinoff would fill nicely. Especially a hole among the people who think Westworld is boring. I <laughs> I was talking with people uh, who were kind of asking me, like, hey, you do a podcast on Game of Thrones. What, what would you recommend now that Game of Thrones is over? And I'm like, have you seen Westworld? Oh, yeah, that, that boring Western show. I was like, are you kidding me? That show's great. Yeah, it's, it's funny how people have their individual opinions. You would assume that you think somebody who likes general good TV, and I think there's shows that everyone can agree on. I don't think anyone who likes good TV could hate Westworld. So now that we have Game of Thrones is done, is there any show that you'd want to recommend to anyone before we get into the Thronies? Well, I know personally I'm uh, shifting over to uh, to finally catch up on The Leftovers because I think that is a show that, that really speaks to me and I just haven't had the time to watch uh, so that's a big one for me. I'm uh, super excited about watching. And I'm, I'm kind of mildly curious about the the reboot of The Tick. 
I've been trying to push you towards Leftovers. It's one of my favorite shows. Three seasons, it's done. And much like Breaking Bad, it stuck the landing in a way that was emotionally fulfilling. It's difficult in the beginning to get into it because it's really dark. I'd say 50% of the people who I've pushed towards the show either love it or hate it. There's no middle ground, but it is some great TV. Do we have anything else to say here on Game of Thrones before we we finish up with the prestigious uh, presentations of the Thronies? No, I think it's a it's a good way to close out on the show, put it to bed, say goodbye to season seven for now, look forward to season eight, and take a few minutes to talk about the Throny Awards and the way people voted. And I, I I wasn't too surprised the way the voting went. I was surprised on a couple of them, but really the uh, the <laughs> just the the freeform writing you guys uh, really surprised me every time. Well, I'm coming into this much like the audience. I have not seen the results. So I'm going to sit in the audience with you, uh, our listeners, and we're going to see the envelopes opened, and I can react as if I'm one of you. So with that, Gene, do you want me to open the presentations? Please do. All right, so the Season 7 On the Throne Throny Awards, starting off with the smallest category and going to the biggest the best character to date your sister so the nominees were samuel tarley he's not the strongest man in westeros he's the fittest but this guy has a heart of gold treats gilly reasonably well and already has saved lives in his own way if your sister's into smart shy guys he might just be the one the second nominee podrick Payne. if your sister's into pain she's probably into pain This kind soul is packing a third leg in his trousers, but he's loyal as can be. We've seen he has the utmost respect for women, and his training as a squire means manners to boot. Of course, we have nominee three, Jon Snow. If your sister's exes have all been bastards, this bastard-turned-prince might be just what she needs. He's got a great butt, he can't tell a lie, and he's shown that he can get down with lowly wildlings and highfalutin dragon queens. Also, really into leather and furs. Next up, we have Jorah Mormont. Uh, We had to include Jorah because Big D's wife insisted he'd be a good pick. Her reasoning? Quote, he's nice and loyal and he could protect my sister. Jorah's got a great heart once you get past the grayscale scars. He's a terrific pick if your sister has daddy issues or wants a mature lover. And finally, Dick on Tarly because look at him. Yum, he's Dick on Tarly. So those were the nominees. And the winner is, with 28% of the vote, Podrick Payne. So now I'm wondering, is that because of Podrick's prowess in the bedroom that people picked him? I think it's got to be, but he's also got that. He's got a bit of tenderness to him. He's a sweet guy. Yeah, and and people might not remember uh, when we first met Podrick in King's Landing and Tyrion had taken him to the brothels, he was so good that the professional women were giving him freebies and telling him to come back. So uh, I'd like to believe it was for something else, but A lot of guys or guys and girls want to give their sister a good time, I guess. And tripod would be the the best way to do it. I also should point out that we were called out for not including Yara in the mix. And so we did add her into uh, as a nominee. She scored the lowest with only 6% of the vote. But uh, Yara, we we appreciate you uh, competing. Now we got to get to what people wrote in. Seriously, you guys. All right. We got some, you know, some ones that we left out. Littlefinger, Gendry, Tormund, Night King. Uh, Missandei, Brienne of Tarth. Those are all great. But you guys seriously have some issues with your sisters. Okay, so first one that we got, these these are all just the free form written in. 
We got all the Dothraki. My sister is a bitch. Oh, well, she <laughs> wants them to get uh, to, to get. She, she wants a Dothraki to ride her. Yeah, know. just run it, run a train on her sister. Apparently, Ooh, a Dothraki train that, that would be brutal. Next one was another sister hating one, Theon Greyjoy, because I don't want her to receive any sa- sexual satisfaction because she's kind of bitchy. Wow, a lot of sister issues. Braun, all the others seems like they couldn't be relationship material, but Braun can sing. He's charming, and all he wants is his own castle to settle down in. Yeah, but we dis- we discussed that leathery, uh, that beaten down face. Be strange for your sister, depending on how old she is, to walk around town with Braun. Another suggestion, Grey Worm, because low risk of unwanted pregnancy. Yeah, I got another. Somebody else wrote to me on Twitter and said, Grey Worm, because... Any guy would not want his sister to get banged, but at least Grey Worm's going to know how to satisfy her. So with all the sister hate, at least you know this this writer wanted her to get off as long as it wasn't traditional sex. Uh, in another vote for Grey Worm and Theon, there's a three-way tie between Varys, Grey Worm, and Theon. No way is my sister getting knocked up by any of these uncivilized Westerosi fools. Jesus, I just pictured now it's just a terrible orgy. With a naked, a naked Varus, Grey Worm, and Theon, all damaged, naked, just rolling around on the floor. I want to get that image out of my head right now. Please read the next one. <laughs> Most definitely not Rhaegar, because we've seen what happens there. Yeah, but he was nice. He had a romantic wedding. He was nice to her. You can't to help his second wife. Yeah, well, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he probably would have had a third wife if he had lived that long. Another recommendation was the lazy-eyed Lannister soldier that Arya meets in the Ed Sheeran scene <laughs> because he makes his own wine and he's, he's a nice guy and he won't cheat because he's ugly as hell. That, that's, that's a misnomer. Ugly guys cheat all the time. Oh, yeah. Then, you know, it's less expected. You'd expect the good-looking ones to cheat. So maybe the, the uglier ones, the, the ladies have their guard down so they don't expect it. But everybody has their opportunity. Another person wrote in with hot pie. Uh, reasoning that Thanksgiving will be lit. No, I would not pick hot pie. And there's a funny theory going around talking about hot pie, that they're blaming hot pie for the Night King coming south, that if he had, instead of steered Arya to go back to Winterfell to reconnect with her family, if, if he had just let her go south, Cersei'd be dead. There'd be no need for the truce. Uh, and the, the living would be in a much better spot. But hot pie is not dating my sister. All right, we also had Jamie Lannister because dude knows a thing or two about dating sisters. Am I right? Eh. He's got a golden hand, too. Yeah, but he's not going to use that hand in the bedroom. He, he could turn around accidentally, like, just smack and knock out your sister. Or maybe he'd use that stump sexually. Oh, boy. And finally, uh, Drogon. Would, who wouldn't want a badass dragon as a brother-in-law? Mm, well, I don't think we're talking about brother-in-law. We're talking about what would your sister do with that dragon? <laughs> All right. So the next award that we have is the best sex scene. Uh, I thought this one was going to be a slam dunk for boat sex. I thought the internet wanted the boat sex. So the first nominee was boat sex. Prophecies and Reddit threads be damned. All we cared about after seeing this scene is Kit Harrington's butt. Sure, the thought of a dead man screwing his aunt might turn some people off, but we're talking about a show that's depicted eunuch sex, father-daughter sex, rape, brother-sister sex, and Ed Sheeran. Don't be such a Puritan. Next up uh, was Grey Worm and Miss Sandy. Uh, Grey Worm can't have sex. He doesn't have a dick, right? Wrong. 
Don't tell Grey Worm what he can and can't do. We always wondered why he didn't talk much. Turns out he was just resting his tongue for one shining moment. Next nominee is Cersei and Jaime Lannister. Cersei is queen now, and that means doing whatever she wants. Her incestuous secret's out, and she couldn't care less. Jean Lyons, that's me, says there's something super hot about seeing the most powerful woman in the Seven Kingdoms go down on her brother. Jean also owns fishnet shirts and once wore his mom's thong to go clubbing. Is that true? Yeah. Did you put it back in her drawer or did you keep it? No, no, I kept it. She, she, it was, it was gifted to me. I, it was, it goes back to the vinyl pants story. I, I had some uh, PVC pants, and uh, they, um, okay, before people write in, I know there's a difference between PVC and vinyl, but anyway, I had underwear lines. I went to my mom. I said, "What do you do about underwear lines?" She said, "Use a thong. Here's one," and I wore it. No big deal. At least you were a gentleman and didn't give it back or steal it and then sneak it back into her drawer. That would have raised some more red flags if there wasn't enough. And the final nominees for the best sex scene of season seven, Zalaria Sand and Yara Greyjoy. And we had to do some extra research, the things we do for you people, to verify sex actually happened between these two. After thorough reviews of the scene that was cruelly interrupted by Euron Greyjoy's attack, we've determined that there was, in fact, action below deck. If mouth sex counts, so does finger sex. Those are the nominees. And are you ready for the winner? I'm ready. I think I, think I have an idea who's going to take it home. You want to take a guess? If you'd already said that it's not boat sex, that would have been the obvious answer. Then I got to go with Grey Worm and Missandei. Absolutely correct. So it, with 44% of the vote, just above Daenerys and John with 42% of the vote, Grey Worm and Missandei had the best sex scene of season seven. Other suggestions were Cersei and Euron uh, saying it happened off screen, but it was definitely steamy. Uh, Littlefinger and Sansa also off screen. Dick on Tarly on his own. Just he is a sex scene. Uh, and, the, and then, of course, Drogon, I fucking Jon Snow was pretty damn cool. But why Littlefinger and Sansa off screen? They didn't have sex. Well, it was off screen. What? So this is like fanfic now? He's imagining a sexual encounter that didn't happen? Why would she have yeah. s- sex with Littlefinger? Well, they're saying the same thing about Cersei and Euron. Th- these are all imagined uh, copulations. Okay. So as long as we're... We're, we're not trying to say it was implied in the plot that this is just some of our sick and twisted listeners living in their parents' basement coming up with uh, X-rated fanfic. Oh, no, man. It gets weirder. There's also Euron's finger in the bum. Uh, I liked. I would have voted for Ilaria and Yara, but I was very upset that cock-blocking Euron cut it short. And then a strange one, John and Theon in episode seven. I'm assuming they mean the conversation in Dragonstone. Uh, maybe it was a, a verbal sex scene, but they didn't get that close. But again, you know, people have different interpretations of, of what sex entails. There's also John's butt, just on its own. Podrick and Braun, again, I'm guessing off-screen uh, off sex. Uh, Tormund flirting with Gendry. And this is where it gets real weird. The Sansa and Arya fucking Littlefinger to tears in front of the Lords of the North. Oh, well, he did get fucked. He did get fucked. You know, not, not sexually, but oh, he got, fucked. he got fucked. Got it. What about Tyrion jerking off in the shadows on a boat while listening to Jon climb on top of the dragon and Daenerys ride the ice wave? Oh, uh, that was, I can see that. That's creepy. I had a friend in college who used to do that. Uh, there'd be people in the hall having sex and he'd uh, lurk around the door. It didn't do well for his reputation. So I don't think it'll help Tyrion either. There was also the forthcoming fanfic about Tormund's bi-curious adventures. 
and Brokeback Arrowhead Mountain, which was not technically sex, but the bromance was more romantic than any of the above. And finally, my favorite response of all, would it be so hard to throw in one consensual, non-incestuous, heteronormative sex scene once in a while? Seriously. We talked about it. We have we had to really scrape the barrel to get four sexual encounters and that none of them were non-incestuous, traditional, heterosexual. Not that we want only heterosexual sex. There could be a, a you know, an alternate sex scene between two consenting adults. Uh, and I think you have the Yara and the Alaria scene. But what made it weird was you're trying to bring your brother into it who can't perform. That's where it became odd. So, yes. Past seasons, this wasn't an issue. I don't think season eight's going to give us much more sex than season seven did. So I don't imagine this category will survive the next year. If you do uh, want any consensual, non-incestuous, heteronormative sex, uh, I do have some internet sites that you can check out. Uh, next up, we have The Best Battle. This is where it gets really interesting. These are the the big crowning achievements of the of the season. I don't think this one was was any surprise to anyone, but I'll I'll read the nominees. So the first nominee is Blackwater Rush. It's a Dothraki massacring the Lannister army in an open field, Dickon Tarly springing into action, Drogon laying waste to countless soldiers and wagons, Jaime nearly dying while Tyrion provides commentary, Bronn shooting Drogon with a scorpion, Daenerys getting a taste of her own mortality. We see, we see a guy impaled on a giant bolt. What more do you want out of a battle? Yep, that was a good one. If it's more your speed, there's Casterly Rock. The battle was over in a flash and a voiceover, but Casterly Rock flipped the tables in Season 7. Just when we thought Tyrion had outsmarted his siblings in battle, we discovered the soft castle was a trap for Grey Worm and the Unsullied. But man, it felt good to cheer before we saw that dreaded Greyjoy fleet. Next up, we've got what were dubbed White Gate, or the East Watch by the Sea battle. Uh, just when you thought it was safe to march your seven-hero squad against tens of thousands of undead ghouls, Whitegate handed the good guys a massive military loss. Team Snowgarian lost Viserion to the Night King and a Thoros to a polar bear wound. Not very encouraging, but the combat sequences and tension were top-notch. Uh, the next nominee is the sacking of Highgarden. The Lannisters stunned Team Danny by taking the offensive, storming Highgarden and seizing all that gold. But what the battle lacked in length, Face it, Tyrells can't fight for shit. It made up for in Lady Elena's badassery. Highgarden set up the Lannisters to afford the Golden Company, drove a wedge between Jamie and Cersei Lannister, and took a powerful house off the board. And the final nominee is Squidway. Game of Thrones hadn't shown much naval combat prior to Season 7, but boy did we get a delicious maritime massacre to make up for it. Euron Greyjoy's sneak attack on the Iron Fleet showed us the massive proportions of the silence, the ruthlessness of Euron's crew, and just how perfectly you can light an entire scene by fire. It left Sand Snakes dead, tongues abbreviated, and Theon shaken to his core. Yeah, for me, this one was an easy one. I think it's a lock. It has to be Blackwater Rush. It was absolutely the biggest landslide we had in voting. Blackwater Rush took 69% of the voting uh, compared to Cassidy Locke's meager 2%. We had waited to finally see the dragons used in battle to their full capacity. You mix that with, you know, as much as I like the battle in the ice, uh, the fiery scene with the wagon train just ablaze. And uh, I think watching the behind the scenes, at one point they had 20 stuntmen on fire at one time, which was some kind of record. So yeah, that battle was was the best possibly top three in the entire series. 
A lot of people felt that Arya herself uh, seemed to be uh, her own battle. There were many people wrote in with Arya versus Brienne, uh, Arya versus House Frey, and uh, Arya versus Littlefinger, which wasn't much of a battle at all. Uh, there was also a um, <laughs> some more contemplative ones, like Jorah's battle against Grayscale and the Battle of the Nutsack, which was Theon versus that guy. Other really deep, introspective ones were my internal struggle with Arya's character devolution, <laughs> the phallus fallacy, the fermented crab evasion, uh, which is, of course, uh, Sir Davos uh, trying to escape uh, King's Landing, uh, the Sisters and Littlefinger, the Battle of the Mines, and uh, also the battle after the fall of Highgarden when Drogon burns up all of Jaime's troops. I guess somebody didn't notice that that was Blackwater Rush. Also, somebody voted for Loot Train, which, again, Blackwater Rush. Interestingly enough, somebody also nominated Boat Sex as a battle. So I don't know if they were just voting for the wrong category or if they, in fact, felt it was a battle. And the Battle of Prickly Thorns, a.k.a. Elena's Last Stand, a.k.a. I'm a Kingslayer too, sister fucker. Sister fucker? Damn. I don't even know where to go with this. I think we should go to the biggest fan gripe. Uh, a lot of people had issues with season seven, and and we try to encapsulate all of them to see what was the most egregious error in the show's production. And so the nominees were Jamie surviving Blackwater Rush. Amazing visual effects quickly lost their luster when we saw Jamie Lannister escape death twice between two episodes in utterly improbable fashion. When Bronn tackles Jamie to save him from Drogon's deadly breath, we see Jamie's horse merely hoof deep in water. But when Jamie falls in the water, he plummets to the unknown cliffhanger depths. After we spent a week wondering if Jamie would survive, he emerges downriver with Bronn in the next episode's opening scene. His armor didn't sink him to the bottom of Blackwater Rush, nor did his golden hand. And of course, nobody was looking for him on the riverbanks. Seems a little improbable. Uh, next up is the jetpacking, uh, which was the kind of the hashtag for the season. Uh, Game of Thrones characters moved uncommonly fast in season seven, whether it was Euron getting from Blackwater Bay to Casterly Rock in a day, Jon Snow bouncing between north and south, or the Unsullied reaching King's Landing in the blink of an eye. The timing just felt off for much of the season, not to mention Gendry's run and supersonic Black Crows. Some people felt it helped move the show along. Others felt it betrayed Game of Thrones' gorgeously slow burn. Uh, the next nominee is Viserion in Chains. Where did the Whites get massive chains to pull Viserion out from under the ice? How did they attach the chains to Viserion's body? Big D says, train polar bears. Gene says, big ass hook. It probably doesn't matter. Do we need to see the chains at all is the question. Next up is the Magnificent Seven, the entire plan to go up north. Uh, people call them the Magnificent Seven, Mission Impossible, the Avengers, Snowshin Seven, and the Jonner Party. Whatever you call the elite team of warriors that went beyond the wall, we all can agree they're on the dumbest mission in Game of Thrones Seven Seasons. Take on an entire army of the dead to capture one white for Cersei? No, thank you. Next up is Ed Sheeran. Granted, he looks like the potential offspring of any number of Game of Thrones characters, but something didn't quite feel right about putting a modern pop singer in this ageless tale of fantasy and wickedness. Fan backlash was so severe that Sheeran abandoned Twitter. Sheeran's appearance ruined season seven premiere for Gene Lyons, and the On the Thrones host is still haunted by the Halifax natives hit Shape of You. It seriously follows me fucking everywhere. So for me, this category should be easy. Because we universally got one complaint above all else was jetpacking. It has to be jetpacking. Surprisingly, no. Jetpacking came in second. The biggest fan gripe of season seven was Jamie surviving Blackwater Rush. No, but nobody... People forgot about that real quick. So in the moment, people might have had an issue with it. But jetpacking complaints started episode one, ended episode seven. 
So does this mean that people just, you know, intensely hated that Jamie and Braun scene so much for, you know, kind of going away from Game of Thrones attention to detail and making sure that every, uh, you know, plot point was believable and well executed and just the jetpacking was just more evenly distributed? I think it just speaks to the fact that they tried a cliffhanger, which they never do, and there was, like, no reason for it. Like, there was no explanation. You see him sinking into something, and then next thing you know, he's on the shore. I still have issues with it. It was definitely my biggest gripe. But I don't even know why it's a cliffhanger. No one in their right mind believed they'd kill Jamie that way. No, but it was like, what's going to happen to him? Are they going to capture him? Is he going to undergo some mystical underwater quest? Like, what the hell is going to happen to him? He's like, no, he's just going to pop up. I think that was the issue. I remember on the podcast that I was dreading the fact that Daenerys might use Drogon as kind of a dragon crane to go pluck him out of the water. So they didn't give us anything. I don't know how that went down in the writer's room. Yeah, it was bad, but I guess it really bothered people more than we thought. So some of the freeform responses, uh, the first one was all the footage on the digital cutting room floor. Hopefully they'll dole out some extra footage and deleted scenes as alms for the poor during the long night, because even bad Game of Thrones material is the best thing on TV. Very true. Uh, a couple other ones were Bran's lack of personality, Arya and Sansa's plotline is shit, having seven episodes instead of ten, Daenerys losing her forces multiple times for dumb reasons, Grey Worm's junk tease, I want to know. No Clegane Bowl, Reek being given airtime, uh, Scuba Zombies, Sand Snakes, starting to sound like a carnival here, uh, Unsullied Marching Without Food, Too Much Baby Making and Not Enough Head Chopping, and here's a great one, Roger Leaving the Pod. Whoa, somebody wrote that? Yeah. Wow. Uh, that was, okay. Well, I'm going to go back to another one, because that, that one caught me a little off guard. Uh Glad to see he liked it. It wasn't us, up to us. But the one about Theon, I know a lot of people had wanted to or wondered, what did Grey Worm look like down there? Was he like a Ken doll? Is that what this, this voter was hoping for, for some visual answer to what's going on below? Yeah, I think with they said, you know, basically they thought they were going to see it in that scene, and then they didn't, and it left people kind of just scratching their heads as to, well, what is going on down there? I think that's more effective. I would imagine it's going to be less Ken doll and more like scar tissue, and it would be horrific. I'm glad they didn't tell us or show us. Some other gripes is uh, why they're still putting that raggedy-ass wig on Cersei. It looks like a dead Muppet. Uh, Not seeing Ghost. They understand that there's not enough room for the budget for him, but they really missed him. The frozen sea at Eastwatch in the opening credits not become the logical land bridge that we expected in the show. A brand not using his powers more productively, like warging into a cat at King's Landing and killing Cersei in her sleep. Apparently, a very deadly cat. And also, John and Daenerys' sex scene being way too short for their liking. They could have used 45 more seconds or so of passionate, sweaty sex. Yeah, I agree. Tommen's cat, Sir Pounce, he's been MIA. I would like to see where he is. That's a plot hole that needs to get filled. And if Bran decides to use him or weaponize Sir Pounce, it would be a fitting end, and I believe that cat could do some damage, just maybe scratch Cersei's eyes out. And finally, one overachieving writer uh, gave us an entire essay that goes, Dorne, the Tyrells, and Yara's fleet all going out like bitches. Ilaria Sand was Dorne's military leader? Really? She's out of the picture, so the whole of Dorne went on an extended vacation. I do hope they show us Dorne one last time so we can see the reason they aren't helping out is because they're still hungover from that massive celebration for finally being set free of those meddling bitches. 
As for the Tyrells, they had a giant castle to hide in. How in the world did they last all of five minutes against an army that soon after had their lunch eaten by the Dothrakis? And for the love of God, do you think they could have drawn straws to select a lookout for Yara's fleet? I've never been to pirate school, and I know that much. I agree with all those points. Okay, now for the three biggest awards of the Thronies. Best performance by a non-human. There are a lot of characters on the show that are not quite people, so we are going to head and give them their own uh, category. First is normal-ass Viserion. Uh, Before the Night King took his life, Viserion was a normal-ass dragon. He stood up for himself despite being named for a complete shitbird, Viserys Targaryen. Anyway, he's the first dragon to die fighting the army of the dead, and he's arguably the most upsetting death of season seven. We'll miss you, NAV. His dragon brother is the next character up, and that's Drogon. Drogon really delivered a wow factor in Game of Thrones season seven. Remember the loot train battle at Blackwater Rush? Dude took a scorpion bolt to the shoulder, safely delivered Daenerys to the ground, and nearly took out Jaime Lannister in the process. Doesn't get more clutch than that. Next up, your favorite Big D, White in a Box. Talk about dedication. This little guy started wiggling immediately after his capture in episode six, Beyond the Wall, and kept up with the convulsions until his ceremonious end in The Dragon and the Wolf. Easily the hardest working undead creature since Iggy Pop. Plus, if that chain had been just a tad longer, this little white of mine could have prevented a Westerosi civil war. Uh, the next nominee is Nemeria. Many Game of Thrones fans just wanted to see another direwolf this season, and Ghost stood us up. Thankfully, Nemeria stepped up to teach Arya a special lesson about growing up away from your family and finding your own life in the wild. In a packed field of supernatural beings, this natural wonder is a class apart. And the final nominee for best non-human character in Season 7 is Longclaw. Can a sword be a character? When it gets more screen time than actual people, Yes. Longclaw was rumored to have come alive to save Jon Snow, although Beyond the Wall director Alan Taylor said it was just a visual artifact. Either way, Longclaw has proven invaluable in slaughtering the undead and creating warm, fuzzy moments between Jon and Jorah Mormont. Any guesses on this one, Big D? Yeah, so for me, it should, again, should be easy. Uh, most of these you know, non-human performances were brief. Uh, besides, you know, normal-ass Viserion was short. He wasn't in much. Longclaw had his one shining moment. Nemeria was a, a bit seen with Arya. White in a Box was a real, even though it was, you know, high octane, it was one small scene. Drogon kicked ass the entire season, flying around, burning up Lannisters, taking a bolt to the shoulder. Uh, he, he brought it every single scene. Uh, he carried the weight. And then you have the tender moments where he meets uh, his little relative, John and lets him pet him on the nose. A complete all-around Wonderful performance by a non-human. I hate to tell you this, Big D, but Drogon gets fucked in these awards. Like, seriously gets screwed in these awards. So He's like Peter Dinklage with the Emmys. By 1%, by 1%, White in a Box beat out Drogon. 43% of the vote was White in the Box. Drogon was 42%. I'm surprised at this. Maybe it's because White in a Box, his his wonderful high-octane performance came in the finale. Uh, so that's maybe why people voted for it, because it was so fresh in their mind. But if you go back, Drogon, uh, for a dragon, he emoted quite a bit. And I think it was a complete performance that will uh, be difficult for any dragon to follow up or surpass. All right. So some of the free form responses we got, uh, and there were many, uh, was the wall. I wept as it crumbled in the stupidest possible way. The speedboats, rocket ravens, and turbo horsies. Uh, the weirwood tree at Winterfell for always providing a stable broadband connection. Uh, probably Ghost for just waiting on Jon Snow. 
Jorah Shirt for putting up with six seasons of man sweat. Bran Stark, though some would argue that emos are people too. Uh, Arrowhead Mountain, strong, tall, majestic. All the boats and ships that appeared overnight, clever little water skimmers. One of my favorites was the polar bear. Come on, guys. You nominate Longclaw, but not the polar bear. I actually scream in horror when the polar bear caught the first red shirt when he was running back to the group. He created lots of tension in that scene. Fuck, how did we forget that? That's a glaring omission. That's that is my I think that is my own bias because I just thought the polar bear was stupid. No, that polar bear was terrifying. I would rather have a, a white giant chasing me. That polar bear was fast, ferocious. Uh, there is no escaping that. A giant, you might be able to climb down under something or do a cave. That bear, I believe is going to find you. Other honorable mentions were the dumb cunt, which is the white that got hit by the rock, the wall, bedpans, Dick on Tarly, Ghost, High Septon Maynard's Diary, the Ice Dragon, I think they made Viserion, Cersei's Wine Glass, the Night King, the Boat Sex Boat, Varys, and Raven. Varys? What? Okay, no, why is Dick on Tarly not a human? Is it because they're saying he's too perfect? I think he's saying he's a god, man. God. Uh, I'm stuck watching on Hulu all these damn kid cartoons with my daughter. And when you said the speedboat, Rocket Raven, and Turbo Horsies, I think that's the making of a kid's cartoon. I might take that idea and run with it. That's going to be the spinoff. Everybody ready for the speedboats, Rocket Ravens, and Turbo Horsies. Fall 2019 on HBO. All right. All right. So the next award uh, is the best villain of season seven. Uh, So in this one... We had many excellent nominees. Uh, first up is Peter Baelish. Uh, this dickhead has been involved in pretty much everything bad that happened in Westeros. John and Lyssa Aaron's deaths, Tyrion Lannister's kidnapping, Ned Stark's death, Sansa Stark's marriage to Ramsay Bolton, and general nasty pimping. Other villains are more powerful, but fewer is creepy. Next up is the Night King. Is he really evil for doing his job? Wasn't he just born this way? Dude, the Night King is the living personification of death. He freaking kills entire villages and turns babies into skinny blue Hulk Hogans. If you're going by sheer body count, Night King is a shoe-in. Next nominee is Cersei Lannister. Cersei survives the deaths of her father and her children to become the queen on the Iron Throne, and she isn't done yet. In season seven, she ordered the sacking of Highgarden, the death of Olena Tyrell, the twisted imprisonment of Ilaria Sand and Tyene Sand, and the destruction of the Iron Fleet. With her intention to double-cross Westerosi heroes battling the army of the dead, Cersei is straight evil. Next nominee is Euron Greyjoy. Ladies want him. Men want to be him. This swashbuckling psychopath is everything Johnny Depp isn't. But don't forget he also cuts people's tongues, kills his relatives, and given half a chance will stick his finger in your ass. Depending on how you consider style points when voting, Euron could be your top villain. And finally, reanimated Viserion. So this is different from normal-ass Viserion. Big D wanted to be sure you knew we weren't talking about regular Viserion. This isn't Drogon's little bro, whom we sort of knew and kind of loved. This is the Night King's new whip, who just blasted down the only thing standing between the army of the dead and thousands of defenseless peasants. So those are the nominees. Big D, you got a guess on this one? Okay, so my rationale here would be people would probably vote for the Night King because they saw him last, but I don't think that's it. My second thought was Peter Baelish. People have hated him for so long. But he died, so that might have softened their hatred of him. I got to go with the perennial all-star. You know, the one who's always up there and people at the top of their list. 
I think she's still at the top of our list on the website for who you want to see die. I got to go with Cersei. Absolutely correct, Big D. With 39% of the vote, again, a landslide, it was Cersei Lannister. What does it say about you if people think you're a worse villain than the personification of death? We don't know that the Night King is a personification of death, but we know what Cersei's capable of. There's no limits to what she would do, whereas the Night King, he might just want to expand a little bit and stop. We don't know what he's capable of, but we know what Cersei's capable of. You're talking about the Night King like he's Papa John. <laughs> he's killing people. But you don't know. You don't know what his, what his rationale is. He might stop. Cersei will never stop. Does, does Cersei bring you back to life? We don't know. Maybe the whites are enjoying it somewhat. Maybe there's a little of them still in there. It's better than being chained up down in the dungeons of King's Landing and watching your daughter slowly die. Dick Ebert, white apologist. I love it. Mm -hmm. Other nominees we had were Dick on, Miss Sandy, the show writers, the Raj, Mm -hmm. the HBO budget, the Winterfell guards who didn't let Arya in, White in a Box, and Zombie Mountain. I wonder if the person who wrote the Raj also voted... Uh, for him for uh, biggest fan gripe it, it might have actually just been raj oh, possibly he's very self-aware okay, other, other villains were bran stark as he makes human fat sacrifices of his friends the citadel shit montage and grayscale pie cut fucking hot pie here there you go big d if he didn't tell Arya about john cersei would be dead and the night king wouldn't have a dragon cock sucker yeah don't go there and support hot pie in his, his little restaurant He's, he's, a, he's a bad guy in all this. Other season seven villains were Honor getting in the way of playing the Game of Thrones, Rhaegar secretly remarried without letting his wife know, and gave his new kid the same name as his old one, one who he had clearly forgotten about. Now, in Rhaegar's defense, he wanted an Aegon Targaryen to sit on the throne, so it's not that he forgot about his other kid. His other kid was dead. So you, are you condoning that he just bailed on his first family? Do you, do you condone that? I would never do such a thing, Big D. Yeah, so he might have deserved to be up there in villain and other villain nominees were the maesters for keeping westeros from any sort of tangible technological advancements in over 300 years and finally Lyanna stark name another character we saw in season seven whose actions caused more deaths oh sure it was all for love i myself loved justin timberlake when i was younger but i wasn't about to let everyone on the east coast die in a rebellion just so i could find out if that really was his boink in that box and I haven't even gotten to the home record part. Cersei couldn't hold her proverbial jock strap. So kind of a flip there. Lyanna Stark, best villain of season seven. No, I think if you know we expect the slaughter to come next season, it's going to turn out to be Hot Pie. Hot Pie will be responsible for far more deaths than Lyanna Stark. And that brings us to the crown jewel, the most important award of season seven, the best hero award. And we have some real heroes in contention for this one. First up, Jon Snow, or Aegon Targaryen the Millionth. He's beaten wildlings, he's beaten White Walkers, he's cheated death, and he easily has the best hair of all Game of Thrones heroes. Jon is honest, tough, loving, and loyal. Everything you'd want in a hero. Also, dad ass. Mm -hmm. Daenerys Targaryen's the next nominee. What's better than a rags-to-riches hero? How about a broodmare-to-boss bitch heroine? Let's face it, without Daenerys, Cersei would have control of Westeros within a year. Our Khaleesi has raised three dragons, freed countless slaves, won harrowing battles, and still sports the best outfits in the show. Competing with her is her dragon, Drogon. Drogon Targaryen. Seriously? 
You're going to pick Daenerys when Drogon is doing all the heavy lifting? He fucked shit up in the fighting pits. He fucked shit up at Blackwater Rush. And even the Night King was too afraid to touch him. Sure, he murdered the Tarleys, but that was bad parenting. Dragons are impressionable. Next hero up is Arya Stark. Who did we hate most when Season 7 opened? And who killed him? That's right. With Jon Snow going all Aegon, Sansa busy ruling, and Bran getting creepy as hell, Arya is the hero House Stark needs. She can be anywhere at any time, and she even held her own against Brienne of Tarth. Plus, she finally stopped Littlefinger's weird voice. And the last nominee, last but not least, for Hero of Season 7, Sam Tarly. You don't need a sword to be a hero. Samuel Tarly uses his brain to cure Jorah Mormont's grayscale, and he uses his ghillie to discover Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark secretly married. Sam has a heart of gold, and he's shown his bravery against the dead, the cruel, and even his own father. Also, he has Valerian Steel sword, Heartsbane. So yeah, actually, heroes all have swords. So my guess in this, Samwell's going to get the nerd vote. Uh, Daenerys and Drogon, to me, are a, a, a pair. You can't break them apart. Individually, uh, Drogon probably be out roasting and eating sheep, and Daenerys would be struggling. So... Judging by fan, you know, reaction and and love, it has to be Jon Snow and that ass. Sam Tarly probably didn't even get the nerd vote. He got 9% of the vote. If you added Daenerys and Drogon together, they only got 30% of the vote. Wow. Jon Snow, 40% of the vote for the best hero. He is the grand champion, best hero, season seven, probably of the entire show. That's a landslide, and that makes me even more confident. He is going to die very soon in season eight. He's already died. No, 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 for good. For good. Uh He might be the one that they turn into the white or the white walker, but he's got to go down if you want to rip our hearts out of our chests again. He would be the one to do it because, I mean, it's clear here he's the one that people care about. Some other nominees were Brienne of Tarth, Tyrion, Tormund, Tormund's sex drive, the Night King, the CGI crew, Sir Davos, Viserion, Lyanna Mormont, I can't believe we forgot her, Gendry, the Hound, and Aegon. Aegon's a hero, or does he mean John? No, he means John. Oh. People are just being assholes. Oh, okay. uh, there's also Ghost for living up to his name, Grey Worm, Missandei agrees, Olena, she's gangsta. And Braun, he was the only one saving lives versus making bad judgments that actually got people and dragons killed. Each one has done its little part, but John, I can understand why he's the winner. And that's why it's going to make it even harder for everyone to swallow when he gets killed. He's going down. There's also a nomination for High Septon Maynard, fan of architecture, taker of shits, and medieval blogger, and the Night King for taking down a wall that stood for 8,000 years. No more barriers or walls in 2017. Another nomination came up for Jamie. The others didn't do shit this season, and he finally left an abusive relationship. Just for that, he is a hero. I can't believe that we forgot this one, though. And this is really something that deserves an entire different podcast of discussion, is House Reed. So House Reed was was the heroes of the Tower of Joy, and also in forgetting Bran south of the wall. The amount of sacrifice and clutch moves by House Reed, I think they're very underappreciated. Yeah, we, Mira certainly felt underappreciated. By cold ass brand, just being like, hey, uh, you know, thanks for getting me home. She's like, really? I think she needs to go home and have a talk with her dad. You might not want to be supporting the Starks anymore. And finally, the last write in nominee, Dickon. He won his first battle at Highgarden, saved Jamie from being murdered by a crazed Dothraki, never once stabbed Braun for laughing at his name, put up with a dickish, overbearing father, and finally sacrificed himself rather than bending the knee. 
D&D, can you please take the survivors of the Magnificent Seven, minus Aegon, of course, whose plot armor even Drogon couldn't burn through at this point, and give us our beloved Dickon back? You can even have Dickoff or Theon. I don't know that Dickon did enough to deserve. If he was homely and wasn't built like he was, people wouldn't even remembered him. If he had possibly, in the earlier scenes, when Sam returned to his family before heading to uh, the Citadel, if he had stood up for his brother there, instead of just bragging about the hunt, he would have been more likable and possibly uh, you know, earned a spot on our list uh, posthumously. But for me, he didn't do enough. Too late, too little. And he got cooked for it. I totally agree. So again, the winners for the Thronies, uh, who would you want to date your sister? Podrick. Best sex scene, Grey Worm and Miss Sandy. Best battle, Blackwater Rush. Biggest fan gripe, Jamie surviving Blackwater Rush. Best performance by a non-human, White in a Box. Best villain, Cersei. And best hero, our favorite, Jon Snow. Not just our favorite. That seems like everybody's favorite. Your favorite, Jon Snow. Yeah, it feels right. I think the deserving have truly won with the exception of White in a Box. It was a you know, a moment of, of, of perfection that captivated the voters. But you're going to look back on that. And Drogon carried all the non-human emotion and and action throughout the season he deserved it you guys robbed him he also carried a lot of humans out of harm's way hell yeah and they're grabbing his like spines you you don't know what how sensitive those are uh he's he's someone that if i'm you know in a crunch like there's a hurricane coming i'd want him to come land on my lawn let us climb on his back and fly us to safety so with game of thrones coming to an end i want to take a moment to thank the listeners Uh, we came into the game of thrones party late Uh, And we even debated internally about whether it was right to do uh, this late. But the the listeners, you guys really came out, and I got to thank you for it. We started as a small podcast doing 80s and 90s movies uh, that were getting a couple hundred downloads a week if we were lucky. But our Game of Thrones season of uh, seven shows, we were able to hit an astounding million downloads of our podcast. And that's omitting leaving out all the downloads we have on YouTube and all the feedback we've gotten there. So I'm stunned and, and humbled from where we started as a small podcast to hit a million downloads in a short season like this. Uh, there's not enough I can say to thank you. Yeah, I'd like to echo that, Big D. Uh, this has been a ton of work doing three episodes uh, a week, every week uh, for Game of Thrones, but it's been an absolute labor of love uh, and the outpouring uh, from the listeners from flooding us on social media, uh, hitting us up with amazing email and just generally uh, being faithful to the show. Uh, We really, really appreciate it. I, again, I know there's a million podcasts for Game of Thrones. And so it means a lot to us to know that that you're listening. And it's not like we're stopping work on this stuff either. There is so much background work that we are doing, the not fun stuff that goes around the podcast, uh, from filing things to uh, improving the search engine uh, quality of of your posts to make sure that more people can see them and and communicate about those things. Uh, Also, we're putting out the newsletter now, and constantly working on other podcasts. This this never ends for us, so it's always it's always ongoing. We're happy to serve and and uh, just really really appreciate. All we ever ask is that you is that you listen and stay in touch. Yeah, and a lot of people focus on what eventually gets into their into their phone or into their computer. You know, the product that we put out and you finally listen to is the tip of the iceberg of a ton of work that people don't always see. Uh, there's research, there's watching, rewatching, organizing, recording, editing, the website maintenance, responding in social media. 
it is a, for all intents and purposes, it's a full-time job. And we really do appreciate it. And all the hard work we do in the background makes the feedback and the interactions and the relations that we've, relationships that we've built with the audience even that much more important to me. A difficult time I had with my wife and my family was made easier by all the support that I got from people writing in, tweeting. Uh, it felt like a community. And I think when we started, that was what we had hoped this would become. I never dreamed that we would hit top four on iTunes TV and video podcasts. And that's all because of you. And I can never thank you enough. Yeah, just to be clear on that, we have multiple channels. So if you are only subscribed to this podcast, we have a separate one uh, for Westworld. We have another one for Taboo called uh, Taboo FX, another one for American Gods, and then Shat the Movies, which was how this all started, which is the movies podcast. If you like uh, like hearing from us, uh, we will be continuing to do that as well, regardless of what TV shows we're doing. And there's a wealth of them to look back on. Also, if you haven't watched Westworld and you want to gear up for the next season of Westworld, go back, check out those podcasts. Uh, that's the three of us, uh, Big D, Raj, and myself. And it is, uh, it is some of our best work and really what kind of grew this audience to begin with. So it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, and if you're a fan of 80s and 90s movies... Uh, and you want to see a, a different side to us, it's a lot more loose of a format, and the topics covered you know, sometimes stray from the movie, so you might uh, hear more about our personal lives than you ever expected. Uh, they're enjoyable, they're fun, uh, and you can also suggest movies to do there and vote for them. We're taking votes for 10 weeks ahead. Our next episode that we release is going to be next week for the Blues Brothers, the 1980 classic. All right. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, I'm Gene Lyons. Uh, be sure to join us, well, gosh, in 2019 for our next Game of Thrones deep dive. Thanks for listening. And as always, be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne. Mm-hmm.